My name is Dr. Alison Walsh, and I'm the coordinator of something called Cambridge Infectious Diseases Interdisciplinary Research Centre, which is quite a mouthful. And we exist to connect a multidisciplinary community of researchers across Cambridge together and with the public. Um, and what I'm going to do today is like, is anyone, anyone in the audience want to catch this? Catch and throw back. Destroying it. See this? This is this is the flu, everybody. This is the flu. I just infected people and see what happens when it gets airborne. So <clears throat> um, influenza comes from the Italian word um, for influence, when people thought that the stars influenced how epidemics started. But here to put us straight tonight, um, with the science behind some of the epidemics, is Dr. Colin Russell. And Colin came to Cambridge first in 2002 to pursue a PhD in zoology. Um, and he, he stayed, he just stayed. He remained in the Department of Zoology until 2013 um, when he joined the Department of Veterinary Medicine. And he's a Principal Research Associate and Royal Society University um, Research Fellow. Also, um, he's one of the Chief Scientists of the University of the Cambridge uh, World Health Organization Collaborating Center for Modeling, Evolution and Control of Emerging Infectious Diseases. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds good. But Colin's research focuses on the interface between infectious disease, evolution, and epidemiology. He's particularly interested in how processes operate at different scales um, and act in concert to give rise to patterns in disease population dynamics. The majority of his work focuses on influenza viruses um, due to the wealth of data that we've got available. Uh, the breadth of unanswered fundamental questions and the opportunity for major public health impact. So, without further ado, I give you Brian. Brian? No, that was the Oscars. That was the Oscars. I give you Colin. Thank you all very much. Uh, I, I was surprised to be introduced as Brian because my PhD supervisor is named Brian. Um, and he's a lot more famous than I am. And so I would be happy to be confused with him at any point in time, particularly if it was people responsible for paying me. Um, so first and foremost, uh, you all could be anywhere in the world tonight, but you're here with me. Uh, so thank you. Um, maybe you've been brought under here under false pretenses because I'm not actually gonna talk that much about prediction. I'm mainly gonna talk about what's actually going to kill you. <laughs> which, which was, in, in, in my defense, the title of the talk, but the little text that's in that booklet that you got, uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't exactly say that. So I wanna be clear from the very outset, and maybe you don't need any convincing of this, but infectious diseases can have devastating consequences. Some of the things that I'm going to say tonight might actually downplay the significance of infectious diseases in your mind. And on the one hand, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. On the other hand, I don't want to, you to go away thinking that Colin guy, he said that infectious diseases aren't that big of a deal because that's absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we have to view them in a very balanced way in the context of everything else that is probably going to kill you. <laughs> Let's start with a little bit of history though. 
some infectious disease events need very little in the way of an introduction. So the most famous of all infectious disease events was the Black Death. It was caused by plague, which is ultimately caused by a bacteria. And between 1330 and 1353, roughly 40 to 50% of the world's population died because of plague. It's astonishing. It's difficult to imagine that one in two homes in the UK would suddenly be empty in a 10-year period, just like that. Makes land very, very cheap. <laughs> now, plague didn't just go away after the, after, after the Black Death. Plague became a, a problem that would chronically reemerge and cause epidemics throughout the world. And one of the more famous ones happened in London in 1665. Between 1665 and 1666, uh, London, which only had a population of 465,000 people, saw roughly 25% of its population die from plague. Now, here on, on the right hand, my left, your left, one of those things, you see it, it's a little bit of both. Um, we're looking at uh, a register that was published every week by the government of London, which records the diseases and casualties of the week. And it's a very interesting record of what people were dying from at the time. I imagine some of you brought a stamp here that's on a more humorous note, but let me point some of them out for you. And so it's easy to imagine that over the course of a year, 100,000 people, a quarter of London, died. It's really remarkable. Now, part of the difficulty is that we didn't actually understand what was causing plague at that point in time, and we had very peculiar ideas about how people should go about preventing themselves from getting infected. So here we have a woodcut drawing from Germany. So the, the, the idea is similar all over. And this is the costume that plague doctors would wear when they would attend plague patients. Um, Plague's caused by a bacteria. It was spread by fleas that were ultimately feeding on rats. <coughs> this costume would do nothing to stop you from getting plague, except maybe scare off a couple of rats or possibly two, or in this work down here, some small children who appear to be trying to get away from the plague doctor. Misunderstanding 
was a profound part of plague being such a significant public health problem because like other things, readily treatable with antibiotics. Smallpox, it's easy to forget smallpox since we got rid of it globally in 1976. It's the only human disease to have ever been eradicated. But smallpox was a frightening scourge on, on humanity for hundreds of years. Um, as little as 300 years ago, 40% of people who contracted smallpox died. And if you contracted it as a child, the probability of dying was as high as 80%. And the introduction of smallpox to the new world was one of the most egregious acts of biological warfare in all of human history. Uh, the donation, let's be generous about it, the donation of smallpox-laden blankets to uh, the native peoples of the Americas was responsible for the death of roughly 80% of the people of Latin America. It's genuinely shocking. Moving a little bit closer to modern times, we have the 1918 influenza pandemic, so-called Spanish flu. And it's called Spanish flu because wartime censors in the United States, in Britain, in Germany, all insisted that we not talk about how many people were dying in their country. But Spain had no such censorship. And it looked like a lot of people were dying in Spain, and so we call it Spanish flu. But it, the truth is, it was bad all over. <laughs> now, it's pretty shocking, but Spanish flu in between modern-day terms, it's equivalent to the death of everyone in Britain in a single year. That's scary. It's scary to me, anyway. But we also have to bear in mind that at the time, it was only 3% of the world's population. Now, 3% of the world's population dying in a single year is scary. But that means that 97% of people didn't die. And so on the one hand, we have to temper our expectations in terms of what's actually going to kill us because even in the worst infectious disease outbreak in modern history, it didn't kill 97% of people. So that's a little bit of history. Let's talk briefly about what's killing us today. So all of the data that I'm about to show comes from the Global Burden of Disease Studies, which is carried out by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. It's truly amazing stuff. And if this data interests you, go to healthdata.org. Here, we're looking at what was killing people in the UK in 2013. And we see that overwhelmingly, well, a little bit more of an introduction. Each one of these colored boxes indicates a cause of death. Uh, infectious disease deaths are shown by the sort of red and yellow colors. Personal associated deaths are in green colors. And the size of each of these boxes indicates the proportion of deaths attributable to each cause of death. IHD, which you're going to see on several successive slides, is heart disease. In the UK, overwhelmingly, the leading cause of death is heart disease. Second leading cause of death, Alzheimer's. Third leading cause of death, stroke. And the fourth leading cause of death is pulmonary disease. If you're concerned about dying, you should probably alter lifestyle factors, much more so than your concern about infectious diseases. Now, infectious diseases are shown by this red color. And LRI stands for low respiratory tract infection. So we're primarily thinking about pneumonia and bronchitis. And this particularly affects the elderly. All told, 7% of deaths in the UK each year in the modern era are associated with infectious disease. This is a relatively small number. Now, if you're really concerned about infectious diseases, the safest place to be, one of the safest places to be, is actually Bulgaria. Very, very few people die of infectious diseases in Bulgaria. The UK was 6%, in Bulgaria it's 3%. Only Croatia competes with Bulgaria in terms of its relatively low infectious disease burden and deaths. But that's not true for many places in the world. If we look at Somalia, the leading cause of death in Somalia is diarrhea.
problem that we brought under control in this country decades ago is the leading cause of death for millions of people. I don't even know what more to say about that. That's unbelievable. After diarrhea, colorectal infection happens, and after that, it's treatment. How many women who readily treat with antibiotics is killing people in the hundreds of thousands every year? Now, this doesn't have to be the breakdown of infectious diseases. If we look at South Africa, for example, in South Africa, overwhelmingly the leading cause of death is infectious diseases, but it's a different one. It's HIV. And so 30 years ago, this would not have been the case. 30 years ago, HIV was a relatively small and unheard of problem. But today, the leading cause of death in South Africa. Now, what we worry about tends to be the things that kill us and or kill the people around us. And if we look at El Salvador, the leading cause of death is heart disease, much like in the UK and in Bulgaria. But the second leading cause of death is murder. We all have different concerns, but the people in El Salvador not that concerned about HIV, they're more concerned about the whole murder. <laughs> now, we also have the unfortunate situation where things can change quickly. So all of the previous slides have been looking at the year 2015, but here we're looking at 2010, and here we're looking at deaths in Florida. And interestingly enough, Florida looks pretty much like the UK. High burden of ischemic heart disease, high burden of stroke, interestingly high uh, burden of road injuries. That's a problem. But uh, things can change very rapidly. And if we look forward to 2015, leading cause of death is overwhelmingly war. And there's a problem with war, which is war brings with it all kinds of things. And in particular, it brings infectious diseases. And unfortunately, we lose track of how many people are actually dying of infectious diseases and what infectious diseases are being spread because everything just gets reported as war. It's a tragedy of unimaginable scale. But here we are in the UK. And actually, things are pretty straightforward. We don't really die of infectious diseases, and that's because we brought so many infectious diseases under control. Things that killed us in this country 100 years ago don't really kill us today. We don't worry about TB. We don't worry about AIDS. We don't worry about smallpox, that's for sure. But we do worry about new threats to our health and our way of life and ultimately our own mortality. And really, at the end of the day, we worry about what we're told to worry about. And we might, you might know, be sitting there right now saying, that's not true, I know what I worry about. But the media and our leaders and TV and movies are unbelievably powerful at getting you to worry about things, some of which do matter and some of which don't. Let's take my president, for example. <laughs> now, on the one hand, he does something smart. He plays to the spectacular because we want to worry about things that are spectacular because it's easy to capture our imaginations when we imagine ourselves being blown to bits by crazy Islamic terrorists. But the reality is, we might die of other things. Um, so my president, lovely man, by the way, um, he would have you believe that we are all going to be killed by terrorists, particularly Islamic jihadist terrorists. But if we look at the statistics, there's a little bit of a problem in this line of reasoning, which is in the last year, on average, so we're looking at yearly statistics here, in the last year, uh, two people in the United States have died from attacks, and these are attacks in the United States, have died from attacks by Islamic jihadist immigrants. So this whole immigration ban, that's not gonna be uh, that useful. Uh, far right-wing terrorists, five. Uh, all Islamic jihadist terrorists, including US citizens, nine. But it's the line right beneath this that's actually kind of exciting. More people <laughs> in the US are shot by their own children 
that are killed by terrorists each year. And the statistics go from, from bad to worse as we look at it. So uh, lightning turns out to be a bigger problem than terrorism. Lawnmowers, if there's lawnmowers <laughs> in heaven, I don't worry that much about lawnmowers, but wow, if you're worried about terrorism, how are we gonna live with a fucking lawnmower? Um, <laughs> you'll see hit by a bus and 737 people die from falling out of bed every year. Now, there's something a little misleading about this statistic, which is you can't just die from being old, you have to die of something. And so a lot of people who are old and die and then fall out of bed, or fall out of bed and then die, get recorded as having fallen out of bed, and that was their cause of death. And that might not be entirely true. But the point is that we tend to worry about the wrong things. Because on average, terrorism deaths are very small. Even in an era where counterterrorism spending was a tiny fraction of what it is now, very few people die of terrorism. But it's easy to be scared of terrorism because it is effectively the unknown. It's not something that we've had the opportunity to confront. We don't know what's going to happen, and it's beyond our control, and we hate that. Now, thinking about infectious diseases, we live in an increasingly interconnected world. And today, it wouldn't be surprising if the person sitting next to you was literally from the other side of the world. Now, to that end, when we think about emerging infectious diseases, here in the UK, we have eliminated most of the historic scourges in terms of infectious agents. And so we're increasingly concerned about viruses or bacteria or pathogens that could be introduced from other parts of the world. And we're concerned because they can now get here so quickly. They can get here much quicker than they ever could in human history. Now, briefly, while I have this up, does anybody know what's interesting about this oval? <laughs> There's lots of things that are interesting about it. I'll take one. What? There are more people inside the oval than outside the oval. I heard somebody say Asian flu. Actually, uh, each year, seasonal influenza viruses come from this area and cause epidemics worldwide. And we can look at what's happening here to anticipate what's coming next. What else? Pollution. Air pollution is definitely a problem there, but I don't know how much of that balance is inside the oval versus outside the oval. So I'll, I'll be cheap about this and just get it over with. So there are more people inside the oval than outside the oval. There are more chickens inside the oval than outside. There are more ducks, there are more cows, there are more pigs, there's more rice. Um, and there's more Chinese people inside the circle than outside the circle. <laughs> um, a lot of things happen there. Um, so, but let's talk about infectious diseases because emerging infectious diseases are naturally a cause for concern, particularly with the way in which they can move around the world very rapidly now. And so a disease emerging basically anywhere could be here in a very short period of time. So let's talk a little bit about the infectious diseases that have really made headlines over the last few years. The first one, and probably the one that's most prominently in the headlines now, is Zika. So Zika is a virus that's actually been with us for a long time, and it takes its name from the tortoise in Uganda. So there is a uh, virus research center in Uganda, and it's next to the Zika forest. It's actually called the Zika Forest Research Center. And uh, apparently, nearby, Zika has fun all the time. <laughs> But the virus was actually discovered there in 1947, and it was discovered from monkeys. So it's actually something we've known about for over 50 years now, 60 years. So Zika is spread by mosquitoes. In particular, it's spread by this little guy at the top called Aedes aegypti. Now, it's probably capable of being spread by other mosquitoes as well, but the primary vector is this particular mosquito. And this map here is showing the global distribution of that particular mosquito. 
So areas in blue are not suitable for the mosquito. They wouldn't find it in southern Australia, for example. And we actually didn't expect to find it in most places in Europe, which turned out to be the case. So all of these areas shown in red are areas at greatest risk of having very large populations of that mosquito. And to that end, we would expect to be able to find Zika in any population that harbors that mosquito population. And so looking at the history of the spread of the virus, the virus was first found here in 1947 in monkeys, but it wasn't found in humans until 1960 to 1998. Now, say, wow, that's actually a long time between knowing a virus exists and seeing a human case. Well, part of that is because 90% of infections are asymptomatic. Literally, the vast majority of people who get infected will never show any sign of having the disease at all. And so to that end, in terms of a mortality risk, it's not that scary. Now, Zika did spread around the world at some point in time, but we don't really know because it could have certainly been here in the east of Southeast Asia well before we found it in the 1970s. Now, one of the things that we do know that's interesting, though, is that in 2007, the virus appeared in Micronesia. And then in 2013, it was found in French Polynesia. And it's this track around the world that ultimately introduces the virus to South America in 2014. And that's when we really start hearing about it in the news. Because interestingly, the virus mutates somewhere on its way to South America, and it starts causing a new clinical disease. And that is microcephaly. So microcephaly is part of why Zika is such a substantial public health concern. It's because you or I get Zika today, it's probably not a big deal. But if you're a pregnant woman, and you get it at the wrong time during your pregnancy, there's a high risk of having microcephalic childhood. So this is a child with a normal head, this is a child with an microcephalic head, and this is a child with profound microcephaly. And of course, anything that affects babies touches something very deep inside of us and is, of course, a cause for concern. And the thing that's particularly disturbing about microcephalic children is that they tend to very they almost never live beyond eight. So it's a, it's a tragic disease, and it's one where it's very difficult to anticipate because a pregnant woman might not even know that she has it because she herself could be asymptomatic. So it's fundamentally problematic in that way, but to that end, it's not going to be the cause of our demise. Now, looking at something that gets a little bit uh, more inside of us in terms of our fear and uh, our ability to create excitement in the headlines, we have Ebola. Now, Ebola is an interesting one. More books and movies have been made about Ebola outbreaks than probably any other single infectious disease. And that's because it is terrific. The way we die is terrifying, in the most genuine sense of the word terrific. And I have spared, uh, just, just so everyone knows, I have spared you all the goriest photos of what it looks like when people die from Ebola. But I can assure you, it's terrible, and you wouldn't want it. But that's also part of why it doesn't spread very well. But we'll come back to that in just a moment. So Ebola is caused by a virus. And it's a virus that humans typically get from hunting and gathering of bushmeat. So in some parts of Africa, bushmeat constitutes over 80% of the protein consumption. Think about that for a moment. People eating animals straight out of the jungle is what 80% of their meat comes from. And in many parts of Africa, that are, these are primates that are being hunted and sold as meat. And gorillas are one of the primary sources of Ebola uh, in terms of animals that harbor it and transmit it. But they're not the ultimate reservoir for the virus because Ebola kills gorillas much in the same way that it kills us. And there's been a fantastic decline in gorilla populations in Central Africa associated with the spread of Ebola amongst gorillas. Now, interestingly, while in many parts of Africa, bushmeat 
is primarily primates. In many parts of Africa, bushmeat is primarily bats. And bats are probably the ultimate reservoir species for Ebola. So bats harbor Ebola all the time, and they transmit it to gorillas. It spreads in gorillas, and gorillas transmit it to sheep. But gorillas also die from the disease, so they're not a good potential host to keep the virus alive long term. But bats can also transmit the virus directly to humans. And in that way, they start their own outbreaks of Ebola. <coughs> if we look at the history of Ebola outbreaks, the first Ebola outbreak actually happened here in this little black book. It happened in, uh, what is this, cotton factory. I was actually on the lab before I started doing business here. The first outbreak was actually in a cotton factory. But we didn't know that it was Ebola because of this long delay in diagnosis and a subsequent delay in an international response. The first place to actually have an international response to an out Ebola outbreak was here. And so this here is Yambuli, and it's in the Dominican Democratic Republic of Congo. And you see that it's actually right on the Ebola River, which is where the virus takes its name. Now, <coughs> these outbreaks tended to be small, by and large. The first, the, the biggest outbreak prior to 2014, and we're going to talk about that at more length, was this one here in Uganda. So this is in Gulu, Uganda in 2001. 425 people got infected, 225 of which died. That's shocking mortality. The disease itself is terrifying if you get it, and the symptoms that you ultimately manifest are also terrifying. But in this way, transmission is relatively easy to limit, or it can be easy to limit, because the example that I give, and it's a cartoon example, but I think it basically holds true, which is in extreme cases of Ebola, the patients will literally bleed out of their eyes. And that is the moment of sort of peak transmissibility, when the individual is bleeding out of their eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone's bleeding out of their eyes, it says, don't touch. <laughs> <laughs> Ebola is a bloodborne pathogen. You literally have to have blood contact with someone else in order for the virus to transmit efficiently. Now, it is possible for the virus to transmit via other routes, but the extent to which that's responsible for large amounts of transmission is not understood. The major route is person-to-person brutalized. You don't have bloodborne contact with people who are bleeding out of their eyes, not if you can avoid it. And so in that way, symptoms are profound, it's easy to isolate cases, and it's easy to stop chains of transmission when you catch it early. But this is the problem that we run into in West Africa in 2014. So in 2014, we have the worst outbreak of Ebola in all of recorded history. Now, granted, we only saw the first outbreak in 1977, and it's possible that there were outbreaks before that, and we just didn't recognize them. But in terms of recognized outbreaks, 2014 to 2016 was the absolute worst. So down here along the bottom, we're looking at a timeline of Ebola outbreaks. And we see that basically this first outbreak, 1976, relatively small. The biggest outbreak prior to 2014 was here in 2001. Pretty small when you compare it to the outbreaks in the past year. So in 2014, in, in between 2014 and 2016, 28,637 people contracted Ebola, and of them, 11,815 people. And this is almost entirely in West Africa. Now, in terms of the distribution of those cases, you see that the majority of cases were in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. And there were wildly differing numbers of cases and differing numbers of deaths. And in Guinea in particular, the numbers are probably smaller than they actually were because of reporting issues. So one of the things that happens when Ebola or any profound infectious disease breaks out in a community that has poor public health infrastructure 
you stop recording the number of deaths or recording the number of cases when the day is over. So I kid you not, one of the things that happened in Germany is that many recording offices were recording people with deaths. They had a person whose job it was to record unusual disease uh, mortality. And that person worked from nine to five. And if someone died after five, they didn't get recorded. Now, you might be saying, well, why didn't they get recorded the next day? That's not how it works. <laughs> international community and the people of these countries. So one of the things that we often think of uh, as ourselves, I mean, as someone who works on infectious diseases and wants to make life better for people who are suffering from exactly these kinds of outbreaks, we have to realize that in many ways we do a disservice when we go in and, and act as these sort of Western saviors of poor Africa. Because we are fundamentally undermining their ability to de develop and maintain their own infrastructure. It's a distinctivist topic, and one that has to be made carefully, because I don't mean to suggest that we do bad by going in, or that they, they need additional help. But the simple fact is that when we go in and we save the day, and then abandon all of the infrastructure that we build with no long-term support, we are not actually cultivating long-term change in the region, which is a problem. Because reliably containing exactly these kinds of outbreaks <coughs> requires that there be good public health infrastructure in place where the outbreaks are happening. Because Ebola thrives in places where you can't make reliable diagnoses and you can't meaningfully isolate patients. And that's fundamentally a product of a lack of basic public health infrastructure. And so when we go in and save the day and we set up our temporary hospitals and we take those temporary hospitals back with us, we're not creating long-term solutions. So this is the site, uh, the clinical site of Ebola emergence in 2014. This is Neriandu, Guinea. It's a small, isolated rural village, and the current best guess that anyone has about how the outbreak actually started was that a child, two years old, was climbing trees around the outside of the village that are frequented by bats, and he came into contact with an infected bat, and the bat transmitted the virus to him, and he touched off the epidemic that would go on to infect 28,000 people. We're now going to watch a, a movie of exactly how this virus <coughs> spread around West Africa. And so, the virus, the epidemic starts here in the province of Guinea. Nariandu is right here in sort of top right here. And we use genetic sequencing data of the virus. So these are viruses that were collected from individuals who were infected over the course of the epidemic. And using that information, we can trace how and where the virus spread from and to. And so we're going to see the first cases pop up here. And the intensity of the coloring of these provinces indicates the overall number of cases. And then you're going to see the sort of comet-like are bouncing from province to province, and that's actually the transmission of a virus from one place to a distant place. So here we are in the beginning, and there's also a timeline that traces down here as well. So we start to see these infectious sparks shooting off of the epidemic that starts off in this little town in rural Guinea. And one of the main contributors to the spread of the virus was actually healthcare workers who were dealing with patients not knowing that those people were infected with Ebola and not having the meaningful tools to isolate themselves. Now, a lot of local transmission is due to cultural practices, and we'll come back onto that in just a moment. But the rate at which this virus is spreading and the extent to which it's basically, it looks like a firework here with fire, just sparks flying everywhere. 
once an epidemic gets beyond that sort of local spread process, and it actually starts spreading internationally and it starts spreading long distances, it becomes very difficult to contain. And so while Ebola can be contained using relatively simple, almost primitive sort of control tactics, once it reaches a certain point, it becomes very, very difficult. And bringing this particular situation under control was hard. And it took a huge effort by local doctors, local public health workers, ordinary people who just said, we have to do something about this, and the international response as well. None of it can be underestimated in terms of its importance. Now, in thinking about the overall transmission of Ebola, cultural practices made the control of Ebola more difficult. Now, this photo here, it's a little difficult to work out exactly what's going on in here, but there's a key piece of information which isn't alluded to anywhere other than in what I'm about to tell you, which is the man in the bathtub is dead. And in many parts of the world, it is a common practice to wash the body of the recently deceased, for the family to wash the body of the recently deceased. Now, this seemingly innocuous activity, if you're dealing with a person who has a blood-borne disease, and in the case of Ebola, the recently deceased are literally brimming <coughs> with virus. If you're exposing yourself to that amount of virus, the potential for transmission is high. In the context of blood-borne transmission, this person probably has different places in the body where the virus is literally coming out of their skin. And imagine you have a tiny cut on your hand, for example, and you're doing just what your ancestors taught you to do. We have to wash the body. This body has to go to heaven or wherever it's going to go. If you don't do that, that person is going to rot in hell for all of eternity. We have to wash the body. <coughs> and you've got a tiny cut in your hand. Well, now you're dead too. And unfortunately, in this way, there were huge community outbreaks that literally killed hundreds of people because of the difficulty in stopping traditional cultural practices. So this, this is a, a quote that I, I think it sums it up nicely, which is, this trust thwarts compromise. And part of the difficulty here was that a lack of education in many parts of West Africa stymied control efforts. Because Western doctors would go in and they'd say, wow, you have Ebola. And they would take the person away, and then the next time their families would see them, they would be in a big white plastic bag. And so in many parts of uh, rural Africa, there was this expectation that actually these doctors from overseas are coming and killing your family. And this was a problem. There were you know, recorded situations of local people killing the international health team because they thought they were there to take their situations. And this is unfortunate because it's merely a matter of education and communication that would have helped to alleviate a lot of these problems. But particularly when these doctors were coming in and saying, no, actually, you know what? You can't bury him. I'm sorry. He's going to kill everybody if you bury him. And so you just can't do the traditional thing. And they say, well, but if we don't bury him, like our crops aren't going to grow next year, or he's going to rot in hell, or something else. If that's the dilemma that you're faced with, there's not a lot you can do about that. There's a, well, so basically, we're going to die from starvation if we don't wash him, or we're going to wash him, we're all going to die from Ebola. And when an outsider is telling you what to do, no one likes to be told what to do. And so an absence of good, clear, open communication made it very, very difficult to stop a lot of these traditional practices that were ultimately facilitating the onward transmission of Ebola. So some take-home messages about Ebola. So Ebola thrives on delayed diagnosis and unprepared hospitals. Delayed diagnosis is critical because the initial stages of Ebola look like a lot of other things. It's a non-specific disease until the late hemorrhagic stage of the disease. <coughs> and so to that end, if you don't realize that someone has Ebola, you can't do much about treating Ebola or stopping the onward spread. 
And this is fundamentally problematic because most places in the world lack the basic capacity to diagnose Ebola or many other infectious diseases. In many of the places where Ebola has spread, everything is treated as malaria. You go to the doctor and you say, hey, I feel sick, I have sort of nonspecific disease, and they say, you have malaria, go home. And then you come back two weeks later and you see a different doctor, because you don't have a doctor per se, but you see a different doctor and you say, hey, I'm really sick, I was here last week, they told me I had malaria, I don't think it's malaria. They say, no, you have malaria, go home. If we actually solved malaria and managed to eradicate it, we would see a, a, a whole world of infectious diseases that we currently miss, because in many parts of the world we just say, malaria, go home. But that lack of diagnosis means transmission is a ready possibility. And particularly when we look at it in the context of unprepared hospitals, most hospitals in the world aren't set up to deal with someone who has a disease like Ebola. And to that end, lack of diagnosis and a lack of ability to deal with that diagnosis, if you were able to do so meaningfully, means that the disease is going to spread. Importantly about Ebola, lives can be saved with supportive treatment, and outbreaks can be contained through surveillance and isolation. In many parts of the world, Ebola has a mortality rate of 50 to 60%. So you get that person to UK, that person's chance of dying is as little as 10%. Ebola is serious, and 10% mortality is scary. I mean, I, I can't even begin to communicate to you. A, a flu pandemic with 10% mortality would look like the end of the world. But for a disease like this, decreasing in mortality rate by a factor of five, just by getting that person into a clean place where you can give them good hydration therapy and effectively keep them comfortable and have them breathing clean air, that's all it takes to reduce mortality by a factor of five. To that end, to that end, it's not that difficult a disease to treat. And isolation stops transmission. If you can stop people from touching the bleeding person, everything's okay. Like really, that's enough to really slow down the transmission. And if everyone has personal protective equipment, those sort of spaceman suits, that's enough. You don't need more than that to not get infected with Ebola. To that end, if Ebola were to spread to the UK, the fear associated with Ebola would probably be a bigger problem than Ebola itself. Because of the nondescript nature of the early infection, if people were panicking that Ebola was spreading in the UK, the NHS would be overwhelmed in an instant. And this isn't my word. The NHS has done these sorts of analyses, and yep, you would be screwed in the worst possible way because the NHS could literally not cope with the profound panic that would ensue. Because you have to set up people in isolation. Isolation is key. Isolate infected people. But if you have 10,000 people show up at a single hospital and say, we're, we're all think we're infected, you cannot literally isolate 10,000 people. And if only one in 10,000 of them had Ebola and you got it wrong, it's bad news. And so to that end, the fear associated with Ebola is probably a much bigger problem than Ebola itself, <coughs> at least in the developed and high-income world. Pandemic flu. Pandemic flu periodically reappears in the media. And the interesting thing about that is the threat from pandemic flu hasn't really changed at all in the last 20 years. Now, the attention that we give to it changes a lot, but overall, the threat effectively remains constant. Now, how do we get pandemic flu? So flu exists in a huge number of different animal species around the world. It exists in basically every animal that we've ever looked hard enough to find it in. I kid you not, salmon get flu. It's called salmon anemia virus, it's influenza B. But getting influenza from an animal requires really, really close contact. 
So here's an example of the kind of closeness of contact that one would need to have. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the next pandemic is going to come from penguins. I'm using this as a cheap advertisement for my friend Aaron, who works on influenza in penguins. And you can guess, the penguin is not happy about what's going to happen. Because <laughs> if you want to swab an animal to find out if it has flu, you stick a little cotton swab up its butt. <laughs> he knows. <laughs> But it is this closeness of contact that facilitates the spread of disease. And so there, there's this archetypal story of how people get bird flu, for example. So birds are the primary reservoir of influenza virus all over the world, particularly domestic chickens and domestic ducks. And the story they'll tell you right now is the Thai duck farm. It could have been the Filipino cockfighter or, or, or the Chinese chicken farm. It doesn't matter. We're going to talk about the Thai duck farm. It's all the same story. Uh, this guy just happens to be from so in many parts of East and Southeast Asia, it's customary to live in your home with your birds. So you literally bring them into your bedroom. There's nothing weird about it. You all got to stay warm and you got to keep them safe and this is a reasonable way to do it. So one day the Thai duck farmer comes home and he sees that his favorite duck is sick. It looks like it might have the flu. Interestingly, many bird species actually manifest symptoms that are very, very similar to those that we have when we have flu. And so this, this farmer, he's looking at his duck and his duck clearly not notices that its nose is really congested, and he wants to help. He offers it a tissue, it doesn't help. <laughs> so he says, I'm gonna help you out. Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pick up your head, and I'm gonna stick it in my mouth, and I'm gonna blow. And that's gonna clear your sinuses. And if you know anything about avian biology, that's completely true, that will work. It will clear that thing's nose out. But here's the problem. <laughs> Duck's nostrils point forwards. <laughs> and so he goes, and <laughs> massive exposure. To that end, if you keep chickens in your backyard, I keep chickens in my backyard. I don't worry about getting avian flu. Not from the chickens in my backyard. You really have to get close. <laughs> if you worked in an indoor farm like this, that would be close enough. You would almost certainly get avian flu all the time. And this is one of the things that's really interesting and underappreciated, which is humans probably do get flu from birds all the time, but it very, very rarely translates into a pandemic. So here, we're looking at an indoor turkey farm. Anybody want to guess how many turkeys are at this farm? Yes, I mean, come on, shout it out. 100,000. 100,000. Now, that would actually not have been a bad guess. Interestingly, this particular, this particular farm has 7,000. But it looks like a lot, right? Now, the, here's the shocking thing, though. This is a tiny indoor poultry farm, and I mean literally tiny. Big indoor poultry farms have in excess of a million birds. I can't find pictures of those, but the, the mind, I can't even comprehend exactly what that would look like. 7,000 already looks like a lot to me. And to that end, there's lots of potential for exposure. So the critical difference between human and avian flu, and this is what actually stops us from getting a pandemic, but why we're fundamentally concerned about avian flu. Human seasonal flu gets with us all the time, has nothing to do with animals. It primarily infects us in the upper respiratory tract. So here we're thinking, nose, throat, upper respiratory tract. It's easy to transmit. You cough, viruses come out, and somebody else, it's easy to breathe them in because they're breathing through their nose, they're breathing through their throat, and viruses get in and they cause infections. Avian influenza viruses, though, they don't bind in the upper respiratory tract. They bind in our lungs. Now, to that end, hard to get viruses into your lungs, hard to get viruses back out of your lungs. But if you do get them in your lungs, it's going to be bad because flu wreaks havoc on the cells that it infects. It literally tears up your upper respiratory tract, which we can survive. 
but we can't survive this. This is typically catastrophic, and it's why avian influenza outbreaks in humans typically have mortality rates on the order of about 50%. But the virus can't spread efficiently because it's gotta get into your lungs and it has to get back out of your lungs into someone else's lungs. And that's why we see lots of cases of avian flu, but we see almost no human-to-human -human transmission. And this is the critical rate-limiting step in us having a pandemic of avian flu. But influenza viruses... <laughs> yes. Influenza viruses also come from fish. Um, and this is how it happens. <laughs> You could also imagine slaughterhouse workers, but they're much less cute. Um, so the critical thing about comparing swine flu to avian flu is that swine flu looks just like human flu. And swine give us their viruses all the time. Possibly more interesting, we give our viruses to swine even more often. All of the variants of human seasonal flu that have circulated in the last 50 years are circulating in swine in different portions of the world right now because we gave them to them. So when we compare it to bird flu, Swine flu, just like human flu, binds in the upper respiratory tract, and it's easy to transmit, but it tends not to be fatal. And because it's not fatal, you tend not to notice when it happens, because it looks just like ordinary flu. And I don't go to the doctor when I have flu, and I imagine most of you don't either. When we compare it to bird flu, we still have this lung problem, which requires this really profound adaptation in order to be able to transmit efficiently. And that adaptation is rare, and it's why we don't see pandemics of bird flu. Now, in terms of actual risk, bird flu, pandemic flu in general, is actually a really substantial risk. So here we're looking at a publication from the, uh, the Cabinet Office here in the UK, and it's called the National Risk Register, which evaluates civil emergency risks. And here we're looking at a panel entirely devoted to terrorists. So on this axis we have the relative plausibility of a claim of 5G versus potential impact scores. And we see that a catastrophic terrorist impact is a catastrophic terrorist event. Unlikely. situation where there will be another flu pandemic. It is not a question of if, it is only a matter of when. The big question though is how severe will it be? So we've actually had probably five pandemics in the last hundred years. So like we were talking about before in earlier in the talk, we've had this 1918 pandemic, Spanish flu, where we have a virus introduced from birds into humans and it causes this big pandemic. But then after the pandemic is over, it circulates in seasonal flu up until 1957. And in 1957, we've had another pandemic, except this pandemic is really small by comparison. Whereas 1918 killed 50 to 100 million people, this one killed on the order of, you know, a few million people and is still alive. But seasonal flu every year kills about 500,000. And so it's a shame, but it's not nearly as scary. And that virus then circulated as seasonal flu up until today as seasonal flu. Now, as most of you will remember, we had a pandemic very recently in 2009. Also, not that scary, and especially compared to 1918. And this virus came from pigs. Pigs in Mexico, no less. 
and then emerged from pigs and caused a pandemic in humans. And then we have the most awkward of the pandemics, which is one that doesn't often get, us, it doesn't often get called a pandemic, because we normally say pandemics have to come from birds or pigs, from animals into humans. But in 1977, we had an accidental release of a virus that transmitted from a laboratory, and we're gonna come on to the hypothesis behind that in just a moment, but it was an H1N1 virus, much like the one that circulated from 1918 to 1957, and it caused outbreaks around the world and then circulated up till the 2009 pandemic. Now, the stories go as follows, and we have to say stories because we don't actually know what happened. So either in Russia or China, we have to be diplomatic about this, um, <laughs> there was a virus that was being used in the lab, and we know that it was being used in the lab because if you look at the genetic sequence of this virus that emerges in 1977, it's genetically almost Some people would say this was a clear case of a laboratory accident. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It's very difficult to say. The other hypothesis is that virus was being trialed in an experimental vaccine where actually the virus turned out not to be killed and it managed to spread effectively in the people that it was given to and then spread around the world from there. The long and the short of it is we don't know how it came back, but we know that it did come back and we know that it came back through our use of it. And so, Things are safer today, but we still are in a situation where things can happen. The world is not a perfect place. So I'll leave flu here, which is to say there will be another pandemic, but we don't know what it'll be and we don't know when it'll be. But let's hope it's not 1918, because we have had other pandemics and they've been tremendously mild by comparison. So moving on to things that do kill us. There's a brief lesson to be had from HIV, which is HIV first emerged in humans probably in the early 1930s, 1940s. It was with us for a long time before we recognized it as being HIV. And it only really came to public attention in the 1980s. And here we effectively have the emergence of a new infectious disease that has gone on to kill millions of people and for whom there are now something on the order of 40 million people infected worldwide and many of whom will ultimately succumb to the disease. It's truly tragic but its early spread was partially a product of ignorance. So some of you may know, but I suspect many of you don't, that HIV, when it first came to public prominence, was called GRID. And that stood for Gay-Related Immunodeficiency Disease. Newspaper articles at the time called it the homosexual plague. It's shocking to think that we could have been so short-sighted and so dumb. And I say we because this was a collective public ignorance about the spread of this particular pathogen. And it became very clearly, quickly recognized that it actually wasn't just gay men, and this was not a gay problem at all. But, and, and that was actually what prompted the change of the name from GRID to AIDS. But even still, the spread could have been stopped much earlier on if it hadn't been so stigmatized. And there had been a much more ready response to treat it and to combat it. But the real take home lesson here is that New, new infectious diseases could emerge and they could cause problems for us, ones that we haven't talked about here. And we have to be vigilant about new threats as well. The last example that I'll give here is actually about antimicrobial resistance. And here we're talking about bacteria. And in some ways, this is kind of boring. 
because you say, yeah, yeah, antibiotic resistance, that's something that's happening. Antibiotic resistance probably poses a bigger threat than anything we've talked about so far. And it will ultimately change our lives, the way we live and what we die from, if we don't do something extremely aggressive to combat it soon. So here's the basic nature of the problem. Antibiotic development is dwindling. So here we're looking at the number of antibiotics that were produced in different time periods, and we notice that between 2008 and 2012, this number is very small. Since 2012, the number has been growing. That's a problem, because bacteria evolve resistance to all of our existing antibiotics as soon as we start using them. That's a problem. And why is antibiotic development dwindling? Here's the saddest part, because it's not profitable. I kid you not, the vast majority of the onus, the responsibility for producing vaccines is in the hands of private companies that are driven by profit. And vaccine and uh, antibiotic production is not profitable because as soon as you bring an antibiotic to market, its efficacy will decline rapidly because bacteria evolve resistance. Now, antibiotics are amazing and they enable us to do all kinds of things and live through events that we wouldn't have lived through previously. And it's essential that we manage to find new ones and we use the ones that we have more responsibly. But right now, we're leveling it in the hands of profit-driven companies. And it's a tragedy. So here we're looking at a brief timeline of the development of antibiotics and the pace at which they evolve resistance. And it's shocking here. Actually, the average lifespan of an antibiotic in use in the population is roughly seven years before is it, widespread resistance becomes a problem. And that's bad news. Now. One of the reasons that we still use antibiotics, despite the fact that we now have resistant bacteria in different parts of the world that are resistant to all, all antibiotics that we have currently produced, is that those, those bacteria haven't managed to spread here yet. But it's only a matter of time. So I want to show you a video briefly about how antibiotic resistance emerges, because it's actually remarkably simple, and it simply emerges through the use of antibiotics.
So resistance is a common phenomenon, and it's sort of easy to see how it emerges, and it emerges in a very natural process. And much of the problem associated with antibiotic resistance is misuse. So I imagine you've gone to your GP thinking you might have a bacterial infection, and you've asked for antibiotics, and the GP more or less laughs at you and says, hmm. That's because, on a very basic level, we've now used antibiotics so much for things that weren't bacteria that we have antibiotic-resistant bacteria emerging all of the time. And part of that misuse actually comes from us not taking that full course of antibiotics. The doctor gives you six days of antibiotics, and you take three, and you feel better, and you say, I'm going to stop. And that's where resistance emerges. Because without taking that full course of antibiotics, you're basically saying, hey, resistance, emerge inside of me. Now, please. And maybe I can give you to someone else. I'm making a little bit of a caricature of it, but that's exactly what's happening. If you don't take your full course of antibiotics, you are part of the problem. And so to that end, that's why your GP is also hesitant to recommend you to. Now, the problem is also misuse in agriculture, because when animals get infected with bacterial pathogens, they tend not to put on weight as quickly. And vets are expensive, but antibiotics are dirt cheap. And so you just give all of your animals as much antibiotics as they can take and let them grow. But in that way, they're also effectively breeders of disease. Now, if we don't do something soon, we're going to return back to this. So this is a photo from London in 1936. And uh, this is how we treated people who had TB. Uh, this is called fresh air therapy. <laughs> Couldn't do that today. No more fresh air. <laughs> um, so today, we would put people in the streets and ask them to pray that their lungs don't fill up with fluid. Because while tuberculosis is readily treatable with antibiotics, in the absence of antibiotics, tuberculosis tends to fade. Um, interestingly, something that I learned in preparation for this talk, uh, in the early 1900s, the old Milton Road Primary School was actually a school for children with tuberculosis. And it was open air, so basically all of the doors and windows had, uh, could be open extremely wide so that the air would flow through freely, so that children could breathe fresh, clean air while they were learning and not dying from tuberculosis. <coughs> I debated whether or not to put these up. <laughs> They're wildly sexist, and uh, you just couldn't make these kinds of posters today. But these were actually produced by the US government during World War II. Um, and they were produced because venereal disease killed you. It's now things that we can readily treat with antibiotics. Syphilis and gonorrhea, antibiotic, no problem. In the absence of antibiotics, DB would kill you. And that's amazing, because I imagine most of you in this room are too young to imagine that actually something like VD would be the end of you. But in fact, just 100 years ago, syphilis killed you. Al Capone died of syphilis. It's bad. But the thing that's even more scary to me, rather than just DB, is that little things would kill you. And in the post-antibiotic world, which we will enter soon if we don't do something aggressive to change the course of things, minor things that we now take for granted would become extraordinarily dangerous. Surgery of all kinds would become a wildly dangerous proposition that we would no longer pursue. One of the first things the surgeon gives you after surgery is a massive dose of antibiotics, and that is to prevent bacterial infection. In the absence of those antibiotics, particularly in the cleanly state of our hospitals today, which look pretty good, but they're still actually, you want those antibiotics, I promise. <laughs> Surgery would become too dangerous to pursue in all but the most serious of cases. Uh, childbirth. 
in the pre-antibiotic era, childbirth was a dangerous proposition, and many, many women died giving birth. In the post-antibiotic era, there's no reason to think it would be any more safe than it was then, which is to say, dangerous. And I imagine most of you in this room are too young. I certainly don't remember this for myself, but our great-grandparents were actually afraid of going on walks in the woods and getting scratches, because scratches turned into infections, and infections were not treatable. And so if you got a scratch, you immediately put iodine or something on it, aggressive, to treat it, because if that turned into a bacterial infection, you're probably going to lose some limbs. The post-antibiotic world will be a scary place, and that's something that will actually kill you. But it's mundane, right? It's boring. It doesn't, it's not terrifying like Ebola, and it's hard to put up a newspaper article about that every day. <clears throat> a final word about antibiotic resistance, which is that in many parts of the world, access is still a bigger problem than misuse. And so to this end, we have to find a reasonable way to ensure that people whose lives could be saved by antibiotics have access to them, while at the same time, we're not overusing them. And my time is basically up here, so move on just to the concluding thoughts. A key concept in all of this is anxiety fatigue. And anxiety fatigue is basically the extent to which we can worry about something before we get tired of worrying about it. And so in this way, while the threat of bird flu, for example, hasn't changed, and is actually appreciably worse today than it was just five years ago, it's not in the news. And it's not in the news because the newspaper can't tell you to be scared of bird flu all the time. Because after a while you're like, yeah, I'm scared of bird flu, so what? And it doesn't sell newspapers, and it's not interesting. And to that end, when we're told to worry about things, we have to worry about something new. So today we should worry about terrorism, tomorrow we'll worry about Zika, and then next day we'll worry about bird flu, and then we'll worry about Brexit. We'll worry about all kinds of things. But it has to change because we get tired of worrying. And the, we have a very big problem as humans in that anxiety fatigue happens on a different time scale than the variation in risk. Risks change very slowly, but we get tired of thinking about them long before they've actually gone away. And so it's not something that we can easily fix because it's deeply ingrained in our psyche and it's just something that we have to be aware of. Second lesson is related to anxiety fatigue, which is that we have to be vigilant against old threats and new threats. So to that end, we have to be mindful that in Somalia, people die of diarrhea, but in the event of a big pandemic of flu, people will also die of flu. And so to that end, we have to worry about both. And that also means that if we were to have a pandemic today of flu, for example, we can't stop worrying about antibiotic resistance because antibiotic resistance is still going to be a big problem unless we do something specifically about that. So one problem does not ameliorate another in the same way that worrying about terrorism does not make uh, disability benefit improve. And then lastly, being safer in the UK, particularly in the context of infectious diseases, means that we have to substantially invest in other portions of the world. The vast majority of emerging infectious diseases are not emerging in the UK. They're emerging in places where people live in close proximity to their animals. And I'm not talking about the way that you have a dog at home. I'm talking about having 100 chickens in your house. Those are the places where new infectious diseases are emerging. And unless we do something to combat the problems there, when it's early, when we can actually do something about it, those diseases will eventually come here. And there will be a bigger problem for us. And so in that way, by developing basic public health infrastructure in other portions of the world, and this means really spending substantial sums of money, we can actually make ourselves safer and improve the lives of other people, which is ultimately the best use of money that I can imagine. On that note, um, no man is an island, and I am certainly not. And this talk was really a product of lots of thinking with a variety of people over the years. But I would particularly like to thank my colleague Dave Smith at IHME, 
and my colleague Veloslava Petrova at the Wellcome Trust Bangor Institute. That and my colleagues in the D Disease Dynamic Unit and the Royal Society and the Wellcome Trust who make it possible for me to spend more time thinking about science than where my next job is going to come from. Thank you all very much. sort of cultural practice, actually. Why do you keep your chickens in your bedroom? I keep them in my bedroom to keep the mosquitoes away. In parts of Latin America, in particular in Nicaragua, it's common to keep pigs in your home because when you live in the middle of the desert, it gets cold at night and you can't afford to heat your house, but your pig is warm. And so you keep it in the room with you, you stay warm too. Pigs carry swine flu though. But it is those sort of simple twists that actually cause big problems. Um, yes, the, the mechanism of competition isn't clear. So it's, it's easy to say that they compete, and, and to a first approximation it's true. But at the same time, what defines a strain of influenza is having no immunological cross-reactivity with any other strain. And so in that way, we tend not to see two influenza strains at the same time, but we don't really understand why. bacteria spread their immunity. So bacteria have a variety of mechanisms by which they can effectively transfer genes to other bacteria. And the simplest of those is horizontal gene transfer, where a bacteria literally donates its gene to the bacteria next to it, or to its progeny, for example. And so it's a, it's a heritable trait, but it's also one that can be passed on. Much like we pass viruses to each other, they can pass these uh, transmissible elements. Yes, so it's not to say that nothing is being done, and that's not the message I want to convey, but we're probably not doing enough. So Sally Davies, the uh, chief medical officer, has uh, created a budget on the order of sort of two billion pounds to look at combating antibiotic resistance. And while that's meaningful in the context of what can be done in the UK, we're not doing enough globally, because much like the spread of infectious disease in the modern world, we're not, well, we are an island, but we're not enough of an island for us to be able to solve the problem by ourselves. And so we are doing some good in the UK, but it's not enough. And in particular, we need to be looking at new ways to develop antibiotics in the context of nationalizing production and development of them, because it's not enough to let profit-driven industry do it, because they're not profitable. Yes, please. Uh, Jane, That's a good question. The truth is I don't know. I mean, it would make a lot of sense, yeah. uh, but I don't know. I have a friend who keeps 15 pence in a very small sack. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not you, is it? <laughs> okay, okay. Probably not. Um, 
Now, I, on the one hand, I laugh and say, probably not. The truth is, we don't know. Now, in, in this country, um, we tend to, to have high standards for, for pet trade and, and animal hygiene and animal welfare. And if all of your hamsters die, you panic a little bit. You get rid of them as quickly as possible. And to that end, we do a lot to quarantine ourselves from infectious disease. I'm trying to imagine an animal that if you had 15 of them in a small flat, he should be concerned. If he had 15 sort of Dalmatians, I, I guess that would be a different thing entirely. But well, I have it. So if your friend was keeping 15 monkeys that he had just brought from West Africa and, and effectively <laughs> smuggled them in, we would need to have a very different conversation. <laughs> but short of that, no. <laughs> give, him a, give him a good scare. Say, say, I, say I said it was a bad thing. Yes. Yes, please. Yes, and so that's part of what's happening here in the UK in terms of what the Chief Medical Officer has commissioned. And so there is a lot of money being invested. But a lot of it is building into the existing model where we basically subsidize the work of pharmaceutical companies to produce those antibiotics. And as a first step, that's not a bad thing because they're the ones who are best geared up to do it. But in the long term, it's not sustainable because we pay them a lot of money beyond what it would cost to do it ourselves, simply because they're geared up to do it now and we're not. And so that's something that as a, as a medium to long-term change, we should seek to do. Great, thank you all very much.